just recently someone asked me, what are you preaching on? And I said, Revelation. And they laughed and said, really, what are you preaching on? And I was, Revelation. And they looked at me kind of funny, and I just stared back for a moment, and I was like, I'm so confused because Revelation is always so encouraging to me. And so I said, what's behind that face? And they're like, well, I mean, Revelation is just scary and confusing. And so some of you may be thinking, looking at the text this morning, I'm scared. I'm already confused. Don't be. Uh, I will tell you this. Revelation really is one of my favorite books. It has a simple, beautiful message. It is this. We win. We win. Because Jesus won. And it's the same story over and over. Seven times the same story is told in Revelation. It's just repeated with greater intensity and clarity and detail. The idea is it's building and it's showing us a greater and greater picture. So this morning as we come to Revelation, I think we should come expectantly encouraged and looking forward. Now, Revelation chapter 21 is obviously one of the last chapters in the Bible. And Revelation is well known for being the last book in the Bible. And indeed, this morning we're looking at the final chapter of the story. I'm not talking about just the chapter of the Bible, but our story, the story of humanity even, the same story of redemption that began in Genesis and now finds its ending in Revelation. And we're going to pick up in chapter 21. But right before this, in chapter 20, John talks about how Satan has been defeated, how Satan has been judged. And that's when he turns his gaze to the people of God and begins to speak to them. If you look in your pew Bible, uh, the page you're looking for is 1041. So I encourage you to please read along as I read for us these, these eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let us pray. Lord, as we come 
we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might behold what you have for us in your word, that we might see Christ and become like him. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. I said earlier, this sermon is really about the ending, about everybody's ending. And this morning, I'd like to talk about what that's, that ending is and what are the implications that come from it. So we want to kind of take this in three pieces. First of all, to think about and discuss what our ultimate end is. And we see that here in Revelation 21. But then the second part is to consider our end as informative. This is our informative ending to the story. And then the last thing is our hope-giving ending, because this ending also provides us hope. So let's begin with the first one. Let's discuss our ultimate end. I grew up going on vacation to national parks year after year after year, and I love national parks. And when I talk to people who are going on vacation to national parks, I, I probably get overly aggressive in my, my engagement in this conversation. I get kind of get giddy. And I, I, it may or may not be that I'm trying to live through them in just that moment when I'm in my office in Macon. And I talk to them about where they're going. One of my favorites is to talk to people who go to the Grand Canyon because everyone kind of has their Grand Canyon moment. Uh, usually starts like this, though. If it's a family, let's just say multiple kids in a car for a long time. So God has sanctified you along the way. Uh, before you get to the Grand Canyon, and you're aware of what the Grand Canyon is. That's why you're going. You know it's massive. You know it's big and deep and beautiful, and it's going to be impressive. You've seen pictures. Uh, you might have been one of these Google Earth people. You know, you, you know what to expect. And then after you, your new sanctified self and all your sharpening children walk out to the canyon edge and you look at it and you just stop. And you're silent. You thought you knew what you were getting into, and it still somehow wins, right? The Grand Canyon silences you because it's awe-inspiring, because of its magnitude. It's unlike anything we've ever seen before. When we come in the scriptures to Revelation 21, I think it's a Grand Canyon moment. We're seeing something that we have a hard time imagining But it is awe-inspiring, and it stops us, and it's meant to stir our hearts and our imaginations. And we do know and understand we are looking at the final chapter in the story. The first thing that you may notice in this passage in the first couple of verses is there's an emphasis on newness, about how things are new. Four times this is mentioned, and ironically, the emphasis on something being new is doing a really good job of highlighting the significance of what came before because everything that is new really is the completion of a story that came before. And that story starts right after creation. We had the perfect world created by God and man and woman were there, but then sin enters the world and the world becomes infected by sin in Genesis 3. But right after that, in Genesis 3, verse 15, God gives a resounding promise of a Redeemer and a future redemption. And this is the golden thread of the Scriptures. This idea of Redeemer and redemption 
is the thread that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you can follow it. This is what we're always looking for. It begins in Genesis 3, and then quickly later in Genesis, we see God makes a covenant with Abraham, where he explains with more detail. He talks about the fact that God is going to have a people for himself. He tells Abraham, from you, I'm going to make a people for myself, and I will be their God, and you will be my people. And then as you continue in the Old Testament, you'll, be, you'll see that God says, not only will I be your God and you'll be my people, but I will be with you. And you will live with me and I will live with you. Echoes back to the garden. And this becomes the new refrain of the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. Then we come to the New Testament. We have the dawning of Jesus Christ. And we see God Emmanuel, God with us. The Emmanuel promise we have all the time, and we see it right now in the person of Jesus. God in the flesh. The problem with that was that it was veiled and it was temporary. Because Jesus in his first appearance on earth was here to put an end to sin, to crush death, pay the penalty that we could not pay ourselves. In this redemptive story, we had witnessed a perfect creation gone wrong. We saw the devastation of the fall. We saw all creation subjected to the curse. But then we saw the arrival of the new king who really would bring redemption. One of the pieces of the golden thread we've been trying to follow. We see the redeemer that God had promised. But Jesus is resurrected and goes back to heaven. And this leaves all creation and the children of God waiting for his second coming, for the consummation of all things. The thing that we're waiting for is that final day when Jesus will come again and he will make all things new. He'll make everything that is wrong right now right. And he will live with his people. This is the day of days. This is complete victory. This is what we're longing for, looking for, and that's what we see right here in Revelation 21. We're looking to see what no human eye had seen since the time of Adam, and that is God himself being with his people. So let's briefly describe what this elaborate picture is really trying to tell us. And that is God is setting up the new heavens and the new earth on its foundations and it's been prepared by Jesus himself. And what we really are witnessing is the full extent of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We see in part, but Revelation 21 is describing what it looks like in its fullness. So he goes into this description and then God says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the completion of the Emmanuel promise. What was tasted in the New Testament when Jesus appears the first time will become permanent. What was temporary and veiled is permanent and full. And then he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What we see here is there's a twofold goodness to the new heavens and the new earth. There's this sense in which what we get and what we lose. 
or you could maybe rather say, what we gain and what passes away. What is gained is the longing of every believing heart. And it is this. It's the most profound reality we will ever experience. And this we need to understand is true. We will see Jesus face to face for real. I never get past this. This is what Revelation is talking about. We will be with God before Him with no shame, having been perfected, seeing Him face to face in all of His glory. That is the true reality awaiting all of us. That is what we will gain. It's more true than our existence right now. Where you're sitting and what you're feeling, that is true, and it will happen. And it's going to be one of those Grand Canyon moments because we can't even begin. We don't have categories to understand what that will be like. So what we gain is one thing, but also what passes away is another one. There will be a deliverance from all of the worldly ailments that have ever affected us or tortured us, and we will watch the extinction of things like pain and death and crying and mourning. We'll see the extinction of the schemes of hell and the temptation of sin and the pain of a life gone wrong. And the beautiful part is that there is a promise that it will never come back. These will be parts of the vocabulary that will never be used again. We will be healed from every wound. We're going to be set into right fellowship with God. These feelings that we sometimes have when we approach God, like fear or shame or guilt, they will be no more. We will bask in the love and acceptance and glory of God, and we will rest. And it's never going to change. And all of it is because of what Jesus bought for us on the cross. I thought about how to apply this passage at this point, anyhow. Because in a lot of ways, this point is information. And so I went back to when I first learned how to study the Bible, I had this little acronym called SPEC. It's like sin to avoid and promise to believe. I confess first service. I can't remember E. Uh, confess something and then knowledge to gain. And I was like, I don't know. And then I realized it's like the right application is the one that I was actually already feeling, and it was worship. Like, this is true for me because of everything Christ did for me. Worship is always the right application of Scripture. It's the best application of Scripture. It should lead us to worship because Jesus wins, and he will deliver us to glory and the inheritance that he received from the Father. Think about this. He lets us share in that. We become co-heirs with Christ. So our story should inspire worship, but it also does something more than that. It informs us. Uh, we have an informative ending. Let me explain. Uh, I was on my way to Presbytery earlier this month. I believe it was September. It was September 10th. And uh, I heard this. I can't exactly remember where, but I'll, I'll paraphrase what was being said. And it mentioned how 18 years ago, thousands of people would spend their last evening at home with their family and friends before September 11, 2001. They talked about how differently they might have spent that night if they had known what was to happen the next day. If they had known their end, how it might have changed who they talked to, who they spent time with, how they spoke to them, what they would have really valued in those last moments. Knowing their future would have changed everything. 
if they would have known how their story was going to end, I imagine they all would have done something quite differently. It would have, you could say, informed and influenced how they lived. Well, in Revelation 21, 1 through 8, it paints a picture of our end. And it should likewise inform and influence how we live right now. Our daily lives should be influenced by this ending that is to come. Not only do we get to look at how things will be in the end, we see that in verses 3 and 4, what they'll look like. But we also see in verse 5 that Jesus says that he is making all things new right now. Like things that will be new, Jesus is in the process of ushering those things in. And then further we see in verse 6 that Jesus is doing in the and we, God goes out of his way to make sure that we know that this is trustworthy and true. That he says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The idea here is that we understand that God is sovereign. That God is in control. The story has been set. History is marked. And all we're watching now is the unfolding of this plan. It will come to pass. It should give us great confidence. The end is informing us even if you think about it in this way it says that this is what jesus is jesus is making all things new well then you could say the end is informing what jesus does on a daily basis it's what jesus is doing in your heart on a daily basis it should definitely be informing what we do on a daily basis currently we live in what theologians call the in-between times the time between jesus first coming and his second coming Jesus had defeated sin and death by his perfect life, death, and resurrection, but he has yet to come in glory. We are well aware of the fact that right now, this is not the new heavens and the new earth. So that means for us, the grind continues. We're in that part of being made new, and we're in a world that is being made new. And this has left everyone since then to ponder the question, how then shall we live? If that is true, we're in between the times. We know the end that is to come. Then how should we live? Well, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 paint us a really good picture of the end. It shows us what God's kingdom come looks like. That's what we should be aiming at. That's what we should be letting inform us on our daily action. It paints a picture of culture's ideal good. It describes what what we will be like in our perfected state. And if, there, if that is where we're heading, and those are our realities, those are the things that we should be working toward right now in our own life. We should be working more towards that person God is busy making us into and who we will be. Our families should be affected by this. Our city should be affected by this. That is what Jesus is up to in verse 5. And this encourages a pretty hard look of self-evaluation to ask the question, is this really what I'm doing on a daily basis? If you think about Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciple, the Lord's Prayer, he told them to pray that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was always the end goal that we're always to be working for it's the one that we're supposed to be praying for and if we're supposed to be praying for it i think that teaches us what we should be doing day in and day out so if you think about this we know the ultimate end 
and that informs what, if you could think about what our duty is on a day-to-day basis. There are so many applications and implications from this. I mean, where to start? I guess when you preach, you start with the ones that are in your head, right? I think there's, there's so many, but I'll mention three. And the first is this, is sanctification. If you look at this passage, Jesus is putting an end to sin. Your end is sinless. Seems that we should probably be also really committed to that end, to defeating sin, becoming more like Christ, growing in righteousness. This ought to be a priority. We take a lot of things in life very seriously. When I look out in this room and in the world, we take a lot of things very seriously. If you want to know what is serious to people, see what they argue about and what they're experts in. But we take a lot of things seriously. We take our work very seriously. We take our bank accounts very seriously. We take our appearance very seriously, our retirement plans, our comforts, our entertainment. We are very serious about these things. And we could probably pretty quickly point to our own lives or look around us and, and show you, like, I can see how you're very serious. I think it, that question comes back to us, though, in, when we think, how seriously do we take our holiness? How much attention is that getting in my brain on a day-to-day basis? Would you be able to say that killing sin and practicing righteousness is the priority in life? I don't want to have to answer in front of you because day to day it fluctuates. Let me encourage us and plead with you that for this year when it comes to sanctification, let's just make a marked effort to prioritize the means of grace in our life because these are literally the means to the end. That's a pastoral pun right there, right? After everything I'm saying. This is the things that make us more like Christ. So be committed to being here on a Sunday morning under the preaching of the Word where we participate in the sacraments, where, the, where we hear the Word read and taught and we pray. But do that in your homes. I, I encourage you to pray differently. Incorporate more prayer with your family. Also, have your Bible intake be steady. Just concentrate on that for the rest of the year. I would encourage you also discuss the sin that's in your life that needs to be killed. Get help. Be aggressive. Or the way I said earlier, be serious about it. Regardless of your circumstances, we can all move towards that. So sanctification was one implication. I think another one is prayer. I just mentioned it. But this idea that the end actually helps formulate our prayers. We have a tendency to pray for ourselves and things that are going on in our lives. And uh, perhaps uh, I know that they can become selfish at times. But this passage reminds us that we're supposed to be praying in light of the end. That that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we would seek to bring those things more into our minds. And then they might come out in our actions. So I encourage you to pray and to pray boldly because 
if if you look at verse six and consider all that it says, it says, "It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning." And it, we're praying to the sovereign God of the universe, which means He has power and authority, all power, all authority. If you were to pray to someone who had power but no authority, it'd be a waste of your time. If you prayed to someone who had all authority but they were powerless, it would be a waste of your time. But the fact is we pray to someone who is all-powerful and has all authority. So when we pray, he can actually act upon it. So let me encourage you to pray. And as I told the first service, just a different kind of prayer life. Just, just slightly different. Let's just improve one notch. And then when you pray, then put your coat on, go outside, and try to do something about it. And that's kind of the last thing I was thinking about and the implication of this is evangelism. Because if there is any example of where we pray and live in light of what is to come, it is to pray and then go out and talk to people about Christ. i just ask you a question. Did you read verse 8? When I read this, were you paying attention to verse 8? Because it is terrifying. It is truly terrifying. The realities of hell are truly terrifying. I mean, perhaps the most sobering part of it is the eternality of it. It is truly awful. Did you read verse 7? 7 is incredible. 7 tells you that you can have a relationship with God and that you can know him and have zero fear or shame and have freedom and joy unspeakable. And you know who can be this son or daughter? Everyone in verse 8. Everyone in verse 8 can be one of these people who become the children of God if they repent and believe. So how will that happen, though? I think it happens through men and women and children just like us talking to people about Jesus. But I promise you it will take at least one of two things. It will take you overcoming your apathy towards the reality of hell. I know that's strong. But our apathy towards the fact that people we run and meet and come in contact with, if they don't know God, verse 8 looms large and it is scary. The other thing we might have to overcome is our insecurity. Because we might feel like, I can't do that. Or that might cost me my relationship. It's going it's, to, it's something is going, we're going to have to overcome something to do this. So we know the end of our story, it should lead us to worship, it should influence and inform our lives, and then the last thing it should do is provide hope. If you step back and think about this passage, one of the things, if you were just an initial reader of this passage, you would realize very quickly that my current situation is nothing like the one that I'm destined for. My current reality is nothing like the ending we keep talking about. And for some of us, we don't need any reminder of this. But currently, there are a lot of tears and death around us. Pain and suffering and sadness are a regular part of life. Our bodies fail us. Loved ones pass away. We lose friendships. Some of us are burdened with worry, anxiety, loneliness, depression. 
Some of us have wayward children. Uh, divorce is in the picture. Joblessness, disappointment. List goes on. And if we have an honest moment, what we read in Revelation 21 just seems too far away to matter. You would never probably say that in a church setting, but perhaps that's how we feel sometimes. That I hear what you're saying, that everything's going to work out in the end, but you know what? That's not making a dent in how it feels right now. And I fully understand that. I don't want to be dismissive in any way. And I understand that's how we feel. I also want to say that it's a lie. That's not true. We're believing a lie when we think that. I want to take you back to uh, January 1st, 2018, uh, to a place, Pasadena, California. Even more narrow, the Rose Bowl. And some of you are like, yes, we're going to talk about the Georgia-Oklahoma game. Uh, It's part of this story, but it's not the point of the story. But I will say this. uh, Georgia starts that game, if you follow football, about as bad as you can. It's going very poorly. Everything is going wrong. They are losing very badly. I'm in a bad mood. The opponent is mocking us, literally mocking us, and celebrating in our face. And it looks bad. And you asked me, a lifelong Georgia fan, do you think this is going to turn out good? I was like, my experience tells me no. And so I have no hope. But I'm at someone's house, and to get up and leave looks bad. I'm dreading the second half. I just sit there, and I'm like, um, God's going to sanctify me. Uh, but UGA actually comes back and wins in a huge comeback in dramatic fashion in overtime, and it ends with an entire celebration. I'm not talking about the Georgia football team. I'm talking about the one in the basement of the Crosbys, which was ruckus. I mean, it was, it was pretty loud and crazy. Now, I want you to imagine you didn't get to see the game but someone records it for you, and you're going to watch it. And so you sit down on the DVR, and your buddy, you know, your really good friend goes, oh, man, that game is awesome. They come back and win in overtime. And you're like, thanks. Good. Um, Glad to know that now. I guess I'll still watch it. Uh, If you had to then go watch the game, would you be worried about how bad it was going in the first half? No. Would you sit there and dread the second half? No. You would have watched the entire game, not necessarily worried about the lows or the bad things because you knew they wouldn't last. And you know that those moments that were so bad, they really weren't as bad as you thought. And you also knew one very powerful thing. Oklahoma's never going to win this game. (laughs) The game ends in... You celebrate. I have watched this game multiple times. This is confession from the pulpit. I've watched this game multiple times. And I never stress. And I always celebrate. Every time. I love it. It's my favorite game. And you may be like, did he just bring that up to talk about it? I brought it up because the same can be said of our story. No matter how it started, no matter what bad turns it has taken... Even right now, if it looks bad, 
if you're in Christ, you have profound hope because the promised reality of Revelation 21 is telling you this will be your favorite game. In fact, whatever's happening now is only going to make the game better. Your story is set. You cannot lose. And I don't, like I said earlier, I don't want to dismiss or give the impression that what you're going through is not hard. It is. But I want to give the impression that it is not a situation that is without hope or without help. I'm just not going to hit my last observation here, but if you look at verse 4, it says that God's going to wipe every tear from their eye. It's not the first tear that God ever wiped from someone's eye. Those of you who find yourself struggling to find this hope, you need to understand God is wiping tears from your eyes right now. So I think about how to illustrate that. If you think about Picture yourself as a parent with a very ill child who is sick. I mean, illness is coursing through their veins and they are in pain. And you take them to the doctor and you tell the doctor, give them a shot. Your kid hears this and he's like, wow, I thought you loved me, right? But you have the doctor give them a shot. And you know what you do after that? You hold them. You tell them it's going to be okay. It's going to make you better. That it won't last. And then you tell them you love them. And you wipe every tear from their eye. And in the end, you're a loving parent because you're doing what it takes for them to be well. If you're suffering, going through hard stuff, in fact, maybe you just I don't like my story. I mean, regardless of the ending, if you as we look at the scriptures, sometimes there is a righteousness that God wants to achieve in us that sometimes only comes by the medicine of trial. And so that doesn't mean you're without hope. In fact, it could make you all the more hopeful. Uh, this morning, I read a quote from Paul David Tripp, and it was great because I was coming to worship, and he said, corporate worship is designed to refocus our hope by reminding us that our hope is a person and his name is Emmanuel, God with us. The whole principle that I will be their God and they will be my people. Either that comes to you this morning as by way of reminder with all its implications or it comes to you by way of invitation. And if you don't know him, I encourage you to put faith in him. Because he says that he will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The ending of our story should inspire our worship. It should inform us how we live. And it should give us hope where we are. Let me pray. Lord, as we have come to your word, we long for the ending. Father, we know that our ending is sure, but we also take rest in the fact that you have given us your spirit You tell us in Psalm 147 that you bind up the brokenhearted. In Philippians 4, you give peace that surpasses understanding. And Ephesians 3 tells us that you can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Meaning that even right now in the midst of all that, you work in a supernatural way that we might endure. You have never left us nor forsaken us. And you are actively working on our behalf. And you will do so until you bring that work to completion. We are thankful 
so thankful. We thank you we have all this because Christ lived and died and was raised again on our behalf. We pray in his name. Amen.